HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca, home of New York's craft cider. I love New York. Plan your getaway at visitithaca.com. Hello, welcome to Japanese. I'm your host, Aki Katena, a food writer and the director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from Brooklyn, New York. And this show is all about Japanese food and food culture. Uh, we see sushi at every day on the supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi, ramen, izakaya, but what is exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, and I try to demystify this program with my cool guests. My guest today is Nobu Yamanashi, the director of Yama Seafood. Founded in 1980 by his father, Kengo Yamanashi, Yama Seafood has been one of the most reliable sources of high-quality seafood in the U.S. for over 40 years. And thanks to the superior suppliers like Yama Seafood, our diet has shifted dramatically towards fresh seafood like sushi in the last decades. For example, people used to be frightened by the idea of eating raw fish in the 1950s. But now, um, $300, per pers- $300 per person omakase sushi dinner is not unusual in New York City. And it is hard to find a supermarket that does not carry sushi. So without a doubt, sushi has become part of New Yorkers' diet because of the stable supply of premium fish, um, thanks to suppliers like Yama Seafood. So today we'll discuss how Yama Seafood started when no one was buying specialty fish like tuna in the U.S., why nobody decided to succeed the highly demanding job in seafood business, the changing needs for seafood in New York City dining scenes, why Yama Seafood has many employees who have worked for the company for over 30 years, and much, much more. But before we start, Japan is available on the Heritage Radio Network website, as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. So please go to iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify, whichever you listen to, and subscribe to Japan Needs. And please write a review. We really appreciate your feedback. Now, let's start a conversation with Nobu Yamanashi. Hello, Nobu. Welcome to the show. Thank you. All right. So, uh, so first of all, you're from New Jersey and growing up in the family that owned a seafood company. So what did you eat when you grew up? Um, I mean, I eat mostly Japanese food daily. My parents are both 
uh, first, first time, you know, fresh from Japan. So <clears throat> pretty much eight traditional Japanese meals, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, miso soup, pretty much for every meal, rice, every meal. Um, <clears throat> so I was very blessed in that, uh, where I got to enjoy really, really good food. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, I also ate a lot of seafood just because my father would bring it home, um, you know, after work, whatever, you know, tuna, I, toro, ikura, uni, whatever it may be. So it was, uh, I think I had, uh, <laughs> I was blessed with a, a different palate than most, I guess. Right. Probably you didn't realize how blessed you were when you grew up. Yeah, exactly. Um, things that I guess are not normal to many people in the world was, uh, I wouldn't say normal to me, but was accessible to me. So it was, uh. Uh, obviously later on in life when you're, you know, making your own money and trying to purchase these things on your own, <laughs> you know, you understand, um, mm. you know, the value of that. Right. <laughs> right. Of course. And uh, well, it's something related to that, but you had extensive work experience before you joined Yama Seafood, uh, such as research and analysis, sales and operations. So why did you decide to succeed in family business? I think it's not just for eating those luxurious seafood for free. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I never seen, seen my father do this business while I was a child growing up. It was, it's very undesirable, right? He was asleep by seven o'clock, six 30 every day. He would get home, you know, four or five o'clock every day. Like he would have uh, two hours, three hours to really, hang around. If I had a sports event, soccer, basketball, or baseball, I played when I was growing up, he would come watch it essentially and eat dinner and go to sleep. So it was really like a, a very short overlap in time. <clears throat> so, and then weekends, he was always away traveling to, you know, go to uh, Montauk to buy tuna or Boston or, you know, traveling abroad or whatever it may be. Um, he was always working, you know, hundred plus hours a week. Um, especially in the beginning uh, when you started out. So <clears throat> seeing that while I see all my other friends, parents are always around or, you know, don't have that crazy schedule. It's just nothing that you wanted to really do because it's, there is no social life, <clears throat> but um, I've always had an entrepreneurial mindset. I've always wanted to do my own business, did little things on the side here and there, but um, you know, everything kind of all led to, joining the company so i you know I, like like you saw like you said i was i joined a startup right out of college and then joined the uh luxury automotive world with mercedes-benz and then transferred over to rolls-royce corporate and then uh to the retail world the dealer world so i was in the car business for i don't even know five six seven years maybe <clears throat> and then um you know also being a traditional japanese company where a lot of the employees knew me as a child and, um, you know, very traditional in that aspect. I didn't necessarily want to ride my father's coattail coming in out of high school or something like that. I just kind of wanted to do else other things to see, you know, what, what would, I guess, what that career path would take me. And obviously, you know, prove to myself that I can, you know, stand on my own two feet. And, um, but, you know, as he was considering selling the business or <clears throat> retiring or whatever it may be, I was just, it was something that uh, he would obviously never say it. I never, he never, never pressured any of our, I have two brothers as well, but never pressured any of us to work. He, and in fact, he actually steered us away from it because it was such a grueling business. Uh, such, so, so demanding, right. Very stressful. Um, 
<clears throat> but as I got older and got through my 20s and, you know, uh, realized this was an opportunity I just shouldn't and couldn't pass up. There was a lot of people that were um, relying on this. So relying on the income, obviously the career and everything as well. So I just felt like it was it was time I matured enough and did what I needed to do and um, to join and kind of ride, you know. Uh, see how it goes from there obviously I didn't it was nothing was ever given to me never said you join you're gonna own the business or you're gonna become the president or whatever everything had to be earned <clears throat> but um you know I was up for the challenge and I was ready so that's kind of when I you know when I was out in LA doing the car business thing I was like all right it's time to give this a go and move back east and be with family and friends and you know join the family business Mm, wow, sounds like a very different lifestyle from uh, in the car industry to what you do. So it's yeah, wearing a suit and tie every day to uh, you know being in like a jumpsuit and smelling differently. <laughs> it's a, right? It's, yeah, it's very different, as you said. Yeah, but it's such a precious experience, right? Knowing the most extreme uh, size of uh, industry. Of course, right. yeah. I think it teaches a lot about customer service um, and just you know. I mean, a lot of the business, the core is the same and just, but, you know, from a luxury automotive to seafood business, it's a lot of the core um, success is the same. So just kind of be able to transfer that into from one business to another. So. Right. And the highest quality, both are the same. And premium cars and premium fish. So Mm -hmm. best service and best quality food. Yep. Right. Okay. And uh, so what's the history of BMS Seafood? Uh, started unofficially, I think, in the mid-70s, where my father bought his first bluefin tuna in Boston. Um, I think actually officially it was like 4th of July or something. And um, he bought it in a van. He bought it, put it in like a, a cargo van with probably like a bed of ice. I'm assuming it's a, a health violation now. But he brought it to, to Manhattan. There was a few sushi restaurants open at that point. This would essentially go road, uh, on park on the side of the street. The chef would come out and he'll say, just, you know, take your pick, get whatever you want, uh, cut your own, uh, you know, cut your own piece, essentially. And that's kind of how it started. And then uh, obviously at that point, sushi was still just a a new thing in New York, uh, but he was one of the early ones to do it. And then it just kind of grew from doing that over and over again to hiring a few employees and then buying his own, you know, sourcing a lot of tuna himself and then, you know, um, selling buying and selling it to japan auction and stuff like that in the 80s he, uh 1980 i think they opened their official office in uh meatpacking district i think it's actually like the gansafort building uh where it's completely different now um and uh he i think he had like a three thousand square foot small warehouse and uh, a couple of vans did some restaurant deliveries and then eventually i think in the early 90s uh, they moved to where we are today in Jersey City in the Liberty State Park area, um, 20,000 square feet. Uh, it's still small, but, you know, facility right right on the water. And uh, now we currently, before the pandemic, we had um, 75 employees, went down to 16 in a week. And then we're slowly working our way back up into, I think, mid-50s, 55, 56 right now. Mm. Uh, and, yeah, uh, things are going pretty well. You know, we're just continuing to actively looking to hire good good staff and train them and uh, plug along. Right. Okay. Yeah, what I read about was that, so your dad bought um, eight pieces of bluefin tuna in Boston for a total of $1,200, which is... <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, so, unheard of. Today. 
<laughs> right. But do you know that he he had um he predicted the future of the thriving sushi industry? Because it's amazing. Uh I don't necessarily think he predicted it. I just think he saw it as an opportunity where um I think he just found out that people are just sports fishing and throwing it away essentially, uh for nothing. And he knew, obviously, coming from Japan, that uh, that's a very valuable piece of fish. So he decided to give it a shot. Uh, because before that, I think he had a restaurant of his own as well in New Jersey. And um, and he knew the value behind it. So he saw an opportunity, won it, tried it out, and uh, it worked out. And I think it was just good timing, to be honest. I don't necessarily think he knew the future, but, um, you know, like, it was a good opportunity at the time, even if it was a small operation. And that's kind of how he grew it from there. Mm, right. It was only mid-70s. That's amazing how things changed over time. But all right. So so what is the uh, the scope of the business, Amayama Seafood Scope of Business now? Uh, we're mainly a wholesaler. We distribute to four or 500 restaurants in the tri-state area through D.C., Maryland, and Virginia, is our where we physically deliver to, and then we have customers out uh, down south in Florida, Carolinas, Georgia, and we have some customers in the Midwest, um, in Chicago. So we put that on an airplane and have some customers that take it through UPS and stuff like that. So our main business is uh, delivering, supplying restaurants and grocery stores. Mm, right, and also if I wanted to, I can get some. Uh... Direct- yes. Yeah, so when since COVID started, we started doing direct to consumer um, out of necessity. It was one of those where, uh, you know, when 90% of your restaurants are closed, what are you going to do? And we had a lot of fish at the time, and it was uh, it was a survival need, and it's something that we are trying to continuously grow, provide a good service. Um, you know, obviously what we provide is not readily available at most grocery stores, so there is a, there is a niche in that, but um, it's a completely different operation, so it took us a long time to really adjust to it because it's not about the volume it's about the precision precision accuracy and uh neatness and um obviously uh you know mm. delivering to home customers especially during covid was easy because they were at home but now that people are in and out it's you know trying to provide as much information as possible prior to it obviously it's very difficult to be like amazon fresh where you know they can track where you are um we're not there yet but uh, we've been improving we've been doing it for a year and a half now so we've come a long way you know starting from uh Squarespace website to now partnering with a, a seafood specific web developer and, you know, kind of being like the product tester on site and improving the platform every single week. So interesting. Right. Well, one thing I, I really noticed that, you know, when I go to go to Japan, every single supermarket has amazing fish, like super, super sashimi quality. But here in this country, in America, it's hard to find uh, good seafood available unless you really do something special. So do you think that COVID, that, you know, the new situation, the sales to individuals, it's going to stay? I think a lot of my competitors have stopped just because their wholesale business is so uh, growing and so busy and it's, you know, way higher volume. But I do see a uh, high value in it, especially from a risk standpoint, where it's uh, something like another pandemic were to happen. Um, and it just provides a completely different revenue stream because, um, for us, it's, you know, all most of our restaurants are on some kind of credit terms, you know, bill to bill, net seven, net 15, net 30. So they don't pay upon delivery. This you pay, you prepay, right? You preauthorize and then you charge it, before, you know, by a certain time the same day you deliver. So 
um, it allows a certain different cash flow and it helps us tremendously. Mm. Um, and I think for us, it just allows us to kind of um, separate wholesale and retail. And obviously that's a different uh, margin scale. And at the same time, um, a lot of the, uh, the smaller cuts that the restaurants don't want, you know, I can easily sell that to actually the retail consumers really prefer that. So it kind of actually balances it really well. So for us, it, it avoids, a, it actually minimizes our waste that we had on the wholesale side. Uh, and um, yeah, just a whole different revenue stream. So I really want to push it. And it's kind of also my passion project because I, I personally grew this from nothing. Mm, so I really want to continue this. But yeah, it's a challenge because of lack of staff. Uh, logistically, it's challenging, and uh, with traffic, especially in the city and the tickets. So, um, yeah, it's something I want to grow, but it's gonna it's gonna be a challenge um, until I'm able to fully staff up. Mm. Right, but it's sustainable, so it's worth it in the larger scale of the view. Um, okay, Hopefully. and then so what's your philosophy in running uh, this Yama Seafood Special Company? Um, the philosophy hasn't changed since my father uh, started. It's, you know, provide the best quality fish for a fair price and best service. And, you know, that's that's kind of the philosophy from a business standpoint. But from like an operational standpoint, it's just, you know, uh, value your people, right? You're only as good as the people around you. Um, pay them well, treat them well. Um, create an environment for them to obviously be able to stay, be happy, <clears throat> Um you know, be strict on certain aspects of our business where we're really strict on uh, time attendance. Like if your shift starts at four, I'm expecting you to be working at four in the morning, which, you know, it, it may seem funny to some people, but it's just in this business, it's for us, it's everything, you know, you can't, you can't show up to work on time. We don't need you. So, um, and the other thing is, you know, don't cheat, don't lie, don't steal. Um, and obviously uh, be very respectful to, your customers, the people around you, because you're only as good as the, you're only, you know, our customers, sorry, what am I trying to say? We are here because of our customers, right? Our customers are here because of us. So, you know, if you have that level of respect and understanding, um, we will not, we will cease to exist if our customers aren't buying from us. So we really value that. Mm, so this, the trust in the company that distributes to your customers as well. Yes. Right. Yes. Yeah, I was going to ask. So, according to Yamasu's website, uh, many of your employees have been with the company for over 30 years. So, do you think that kind of uh, philosophy based on trust uh, is keeping them with the company for such a long time? Yeah. So, my father, his his main core value, just despite being very strict and very old school in many ways, uh, he valued people. He took really good care of his staff treated them well, paid them well, um, you know, had a very good personal relationship with many of them as well. So knew their families, their kids, um, their life. And, you know, everyone really appreciated that in many ways. And, um, you know, those are the people that are still here today. Those are people that will retire, you know, putting in 30, 40 years in the company. And, um, that's how I strive to do. I know it's very different <laughs> because, um, you know, when he started it, it was, it was him and a bunch of Japanese immigrants that came together and worked as kind of like misfits and didn't fit into America per se, not necessarily fit in, but, you know, they were kind of bonded together and was able to, um, you know, grow this from nothing. So they all had a really strong bond. Mm, right. That's very unique and a strong 
Okay, uh, we'll take a quick break here, and then when we come back, we'll discuss challenges no faces in dealing with diverse and demanding restaurant clients. So please stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca, helping you to plan your next getaway. Ithaca has waterfalls and wineries, art and theater, outdoor recreation, and family fun. The area is famous for its glacier carved gorges, co op run businesses, and cultural influences from Cornell University and Ithaca College. Plus, you can't beat the beauty of Cayuga Lake, the largest of the Finger Lakes. Beyond 150 waterfalls and some of the region's best hiking trails, Ithaca is cider. The area is well known for its local cideries, which are leading the way in America's cider revival. You can hear from the region's cider makers directly on HRN series Hardcore. There's something really special about Ithaca's climate for cultivating delicious apples steeped in history and terroir. Let Visit Ithaca help you plan your next trip to this hub of food, drink, culture, and agritourism. Home of New York's craft cider, I love New York. Get started at visitithaca.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Japanese. I'm your host, Aki Kukatema, and my guest today is Nobu Yamanashi, the director of Yama Seafood. Founded in 1980 by his father, Kengo Yamanashi, Yama Seafood has been one of the most reliable sources of high quality seafood in the US for over 40 years. So,、uh, so let's take, talk about what you sell. So, what types of seafood do you sell, and where are they from? Do you import fish from Japan mostly, or it could be local? Yeah, we sell everything. We sell everything from、uh, domestic fish well, and local fluke,、um, local Spanish mackerel, well, local I mean domestic Spanish mackerel, to we import、uh, from Japan、uh, three days a week from you know, your farmed hamachi, shimaji,、uh, madai,、uh, to your toyosu wild fish like kimedai, noduguro, your Japanese uni from Hokkaido,、um, to salmon from Canada, Europe.、Um, You know, sea bass from、uh, Bronzini from you know, the Mediterranean.、Um, you know, you name it, we have it. you know、uh, So we literally sell, we probably touch almost every single continent,、uh, maybe besides like Antarctica or something.、Mm, okay, right. And、uh, the seafood is often a subject of discussion when it comes to sustainability. So, what's your philosophy of sustainability?、Uh, sustainability is a really tough. I mean, it's a buzzword. I don't know if it's a buzzword or not, but it's a very tough topic because、um, sustainability, I know, is important and it's going to be the future of any business, any food related business,、um, especially if you're taking stuff like wild, wild animals. <clears throat> so、um, I know, you know, everyone talks about overfishing of tuna and stuff like that. That's, you know, that's our、uh, big. Big business tuna, and obviously, most of it is wild. So,、um, obviously, we need to really focus on the future. If there's going to be a future in this business, is you know, fig- figuring out what、uh, farms and suppliers to partner with so you know, we can really focus on growing that aspect of the business as、um, you know, we try to focus on sustainability.、Mm, right. Okay.、Um, well, You know, do you have this specific product called the fourth generation farmed fish? So, 
sounds like this very sustainable fish. So what is it? Uh, well, it's from uh, Kindai University in Japan. They developed this technology where it's from egg to hatch. So uh, fully, you know, it's like full circle sustainability where um, it, it's, if you, when you consider it for sustainable, it just can't be any, any more sustainable than this because they literally raise it from, from, from an egg. So unfortunately right now, due to COVID, since COVID started, we aren't selling any of these products just because it's um, very expensive. And uh, especially when COVID started, um, you know, all the restaurants are very price sensitive. So this was one of the, you know, expense, one of the more expensive items that kind of went away as uh, restaurants shifted more towards actually uh, less expensive products. So shifted away from Jap Japan fish to maybe more like New Zealand or domestic or Europe. So uh, this still hasn't come back in terms of uh, customers uh, demand. So I'm hoping it will in the near future, but I'm also not sure what their uh, production level is either. Mm. I'm sure when what would happen, a lot of farms, not only them, stopped producing because they didn't, they couldn't tell the future. So a lot of them really stopped spending money on raising them because um, they had no idea what would happen. Right. Well, I keep hearing that more technology um, advancement has been happening with the uh, you know, farming tuna, which is a good good news because it's always the uh, highest consumption uh, fish at sushi place and those other places. So that's that's great. So uh, hopefully this COVID thing is going to be a little eased up very soon in Japan and other places. But um, so, you know, the chefs rave about imported fish from Japan. And if, of course, it's not the most sustainable thing to import fish from Japan, but it's like non-negotiable when I speak to uh, many, many sushi chefs, uh, at least in Japan, in America. So what do you think is a difference between fish from Japan and other places? Uh, it's, 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 I think one of it is branding, you know, anything from Japan, if you say it's from Japan, it carries a higher value, but although the biggest thing is handling processing and the level of care compared to any other country in the world. So I mean, even just from the packaging standpoint, fish that's even farm fish from Japan is packaged way more professionally, you know, on ice packs packed in green tuna paper and there's no water dripping out of it. Everything is lined up professionally um, and packaged nicely as opposed to, you you know, you buy domestic fish from, uh, you know, domestic fluke. It's on like, um, like rock ice and it damages the fish. It's not killed properly. It's just all just kind of, mushed together in a box, um, damaged and whatnot. So um, it's just a level of care and a level of knowledge, right? Um, you know, other parts of the country, they don't use the best technique to kill. So it doesn't, it, it shrinks the shelf life. Even, a, you know, a fluke that comes from Long Island or something may have a shorter shelf life than a fish that comes from Japan just because of the way it's killed or maybe a lack of, like maybe they don't even kill it. Maybe they just... Uh, just leave it out to die, like asphy asphyxiation. So like kind of like, um, you know, lack of air. Mm. So <clears throat> that doesn't help um, the shelf life of the fish and the qualities that deteriorates very quickly. In the way J Japanese uh, farms and fishermen process and kill the fish uh, through Ikejima technique or there's other newer techniques that they do, um, it prolongs the shelf life, the quality, uh, and I guess that's the big difference even though, you know, that's why they're willing to right. still pay yeah. for the 
crazy high air freight prices and the prices that are um, even for the same exact species of fish, it's just higher value in Japan. And, you know, people will be willing, willing to pay for that as well. And I think in mm. nowadays, a lot of it is, um, you know, you, you put Japan or Japanese name behind it, it just carries a higher value as well. And not just fish, but not a lot of other things as well. Mm. Right. Details. And uh, yeah, you, you mentioned that new technique. I heard it gets smoto shiki. That's the new way to completely clean the blood out of fish, and then you can preserve fish days more longer um, than it used to be not treated in smoto methods. So, yeah, it's ex- exciting. All the technology uh, keeps um, happening, and the development ha- happens by, um, um, you know, like a never ending pursuit of uh, inquiry improvement in Japan, like Kaizen method. So, yeah, I really wonder how, you know, the American or the non-Japanese fishermen and all those, um, you know, people working the medium um, change their perception about how important it is to treat fish like Japanese distributors because that can really bring them a lot of money. So, yeah, I, I'm curious. Um, okay. But uh, do you see other people in outside of Japan uh, learning those techniques to preserve fish or treat fish better than before? Um, I think I think a lot of it is like Japanese businesses or fishermen going abroad and teaching and you know processing in that way. But it's unless it's it's a cultural thing, so it's really hard to just instill in the whole industry in that country uh, in that country per se. It's kind of just like in, in Japan, they respect fish and um, they eat every part of the fish as opposed to other countries. They may not, they may like, you know, it may not even be their main staple item. So um, I don't, I think it's very hard to change people's people just because it's, 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 it's a cultural difference, I think. Right. So um, I think in the future, there will be more robotics involved that will help it without requiring human skill. That would help the processing side of it, um, but in terms of like individuals doing it from a person standpoint, I don't think it'll be very difficult to instill that in other countries mm. as a whole. Right. Okay. And uh, so, by the way, you have a lot of non-Japanese clients, including Michelin star restaurants. So, how do you how did you yeah Yama seafood cultivate the non-Japanese client base in the first place? Um, I think we were just. We were always known in the industry as having the best tuna in the Northeast. So a lot of the French restaurants love tuna. So uh, that's kind of how they found out we are the best and they contacted us and we cultivated the relationship. We just, even if there's a language barrier, you just, you know, you provide the best service you can uh, with the best products, you know, and just develop long relationships as long as, you know, we're both happy it works. Mm, right. So what's the ratio of Japanese and non-Japanese clients right now? Um, well, honestly, there's very few Japanese chefs in New York now um, or anywhere for that matter. Even a lot of the sushi restaurants are not owned by Japanese people or run by Japanese people. Um, it's a lot more a diverse uh, variety from you know, maybe different, different Asian countries or not even non-Asian countries um, that are operating sushi restaurants. So um, my guess is the ratio of Japanese chefs that we deal with compared to non-Japanese chefs, or I'm going to guess like maybe 20% Japanese chefs and the rest are not. Wow, that's interesting. Wow, 
Okay. And uh, so do they order different types of fish? Like, you know, like a French restaurant versus sushi restaurant? Is there any big difference? Yeah, I mean, French restaurants typically, uh, they don't use um, a lot of the Japanese fish that a sushi restaurant would use, of course. But, um, you know, their main focus is usually like whitefish, uh, tuna, yellowfin tuna. They love cherry red, bright red tuna and uh, uni. Uh, it's kind of what they mainly, and then uh, hamachi is also something that they use as well. Mm. So, but as uh, sushi restaurants, they use everything, like all the frozen items, all the Japanese fish, domestic fish, everything. So it all really depends from a, a takeout restaurant to a, an omakase, high omakase, mid range omakase. So uh, every sushi restaurant really differs as well. Some may only use frozen, some may only use wild. So it really, really varies by their price point and what their uh, what their kind of business model is mm, wow you must be busy trying to even remember how to record <laughs> what each restaurant needs it must be really hard yeah i mean dealing with you know catering to 300 400 500 different clients every client having different um, preferences color price point you know it's just it's it's a it can be challenging at times you know backside belly side different cuts so it's uh um Thank God for technology, but yeah, it's it's the the distribution side is very challenging. Mm, right. Well, speaking of, um, you work in the seafood industry, which means you have a very unique schedule. So, what does your typical day look like? Um, I wake up any anywhere between one thirty to three o'clock in the morning, and. Um, you know, I'm in the office anytime between 2.30 and 4, 3.30, 2.30 and 3.30 usually. And um, pretty much the morning starts as um, pack the orders and then make sure it gets floated onto the van, make sure the vans leave on time. And then just from then on, it's just um, preparing for the next day or processing for whatever processing we do with, you know, um, we do a lot of prep work for restaurants now. And then other than that, it's just kind of, making sure there's no issues with deliveries, no claims, no traffic, no accidents, um, returns, or um, any kind of issues. So it's just kind of like dealing with the day-to-day issues that could arise during delivery, you know, chef not being there or, um, you know, whatever it may be. So there's, you know, when you however many vans and people you have out there, that's the many chances of issues that could happen from tickets to um, even theft to, um um, accidents to, you know, hopefully you just hope you, the best is you hope there's no phone calls or there's many, the only phone call that we get is to say they're coming back and we get no complaints from restaurants and there's no accidents and, um, you know, there's no traffic and everything goes smoothly and that's it. But, you know, every day is a different day. Mm, wow. Okay. And then, um, so what, what's the end of the day? You can just finish up like, I don't know what time, <laughs> Does your day end? Uh, like today, for example, um, I, I close the warehouse, meaning I'm the last one. I, I wait for the last van to come out, uh, pretty much check everything, lock up, and then leave. <clears throat> so um, so t- t- day like this today, I would probably leave around between 3.30 and 4.30, uh, depending upon if there's any issues with delivery. And then I'll be in bed around 6.37. I have a, f- a six months old now, so it's just go home. Uh, take care of the baby, you know, and the dogs and, you know, spend time with the family and then just, you know, spend the very few hours I have left and just go to sleep and then wake up. Wow. You know, on a day that I don't close and I'm home between, 
I would say 12 and two, if I have to go out to do deliveries, because I'm trying to, you know, assess the drivers and, you know, make sure I, you know, greet the clients and whatnot. So when I go to delivery, I may come back around two. Um, if I don't have to go out, I may leave around 12 and one. So mm. it really depends. Day to day. Wow. So it's a shame because you can go to great sushi restaurants, you supply <laughs> your fish too, right? You just know uh, nightlife. But <laughs> yeah, I can. Yeah. But the only day I could do it is on a Saturday because Friday I'm up since one thirty. So if I try, like I did dinner with the, uh, one of my uh, one of our tuna vendors last week and the dinner was at six and we didn't go home till like nine. And at that point, I've been up for 20, <laughs> 19 hours. So, yeah, it's not it's very difficult to do anything on Friday. So, yeah, I mean, the only, the only day we can really actually go out is like Saturday. Mm. Um, but still, like I'm in bed by like nine o'clock on a Saturday. It's just. When your body's used to it, it's very difficult to stay up late like you or stay up at normal hours like normal people would. Right. Wow. So uh, thanks to your devotion, uh, all the diners in New York City and not, you know, for that matter, for the whole country is getting uh, the really amazing food. So thank you. <laughs> um, yeah. And then actually I had to mention that. So I watched a wonderful video about your work and the MSC food Um operation uh it's featured by eater so i'll put the link on the show page but it's really i was very impressed you know your spirit energy uh your work ethics and everybody's work ethics how exciting the whole dairy operation is so yeah it's a great video um Thank you so much. Okay, so uh, yeah, it's a it's just amazing video the eater did a great job so the link is on the show page. So uh, speaking of, what is the most challenging part of your job out of this whole challenging days? Um, I mean, it's a day-to-day. It's just dealing with different problems um, with deliveries or, you know, like I said, every chef has their own preferences. So sometimes may not be able to meet it. So just trying to explain uh, to sort that out. Or um, you might, or any in any business, our long-term challenge is trying to find the right staff and grow and develop them for the future. So that's, I guess, the biggest long-term challenge. Um, but from a day-to-day standpoint, it's just, you know, dealing with the the day-to-day issues regarding deliveries mm. is kind of the most challenging. Right. Yeah. So you're a problem solver constantly. Something like that. Right. <laughs> and uh, what is the most rewarding part of your job? Um, to see a lot of it is, I mean, the most rewarding part for me is seeing my staff, my employees, um, you know, being able to take care of their families, provide for them, um, you know, and having pride and respect and I guess joy towards the company um, is, is a big, big part of it as well. Um, you know, obviously we strive for my father, we strive to be the you know company that uh, your staff can brag about. Mm. Um, but other than that, it's, like you said, um, and, you know, on the off chance that we get to enjoy uh, to eat at one of our clients' restaurants, that's a, you know, that's a, a, a big joy as well. We got to do that last Friday, even though we were exhausted, it was still very much fun, especially in this COVID, COVID world where, you know, we haven't gone dined at a run of our clients' restaurants in probably over a year. So that was nice, um, you know, to be able to just kind of separate, you know, your day-to-day grind to um, enjoying you know, the fish that you provide to your customer and actually physically consuming it. Mm, so. Right. Okay. When I dine out next time at the sushi restaurant mm-hmm. and other place, I will think of you. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, by the way, so you work with your trusted buyer, 
by years, probably, at the Toyosu market in Japan. And uh, the Tsukiji market, that was the famous uh, biggest fish market in the world, moved to a new location in 2018, which is called now the Toyosu market. So how is the new market? Um, any difference from the Tsukiji in running your business? Uh, there's really no difference. Uh, they just moved from one location to another. I believe it's uh, spatially bigger and more efficient. Um, but from a standpoint of us being here in New York, uh, New Jersey, from an operational logistical standpoint, it doesn't make any difference to us. Um, you know, the buyers just moved from their Tsukiji office to their new office in Toyosu and nothing really changes. Mm, right. I heard they're like 20 minutes by car in between. So, okay. And so based on your business history, how do you predict the future of seafood consumption or seafood diet, whatever, in New York and the U.S.? Um, I think it's going to continue to boom. Um, it's very healthy. It's good for you. Um, tastes delicious, obviously. Um, but, you know, I think a lot of it is, I think consumers are, uh, they're, they're, they're not wanting the rolls as much as more they want um, a better diet. They want a good dining experience, I think is what I see. So a lot of, since the last two years, just before COVID, a lot of omakases were popping up, and whether it be $50, $100, $250, $400 per person. Um, I think a lot of the customers, even non-Japanese, non-Asian customers, are really uh, seeking those experience with the chef to converse with them, to have them explain each individual piece, see it in front of your face, see how they prepare it. Uh, it's kind of like more of a work of art entertainment, not just like you see it on a plate and you eat it and you go home and you you know enjoy talking to your friends. I think a lot of the uh, interaction with the chef is becoming more of a um, more of what people are seeking for. That's why they're willing to pay more for it. So that's why you see all these, you know, even uh, I think Yoshino opened up recently. I think they're like four hundred dollars a person. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, Masaito, is going to open a restaurant in Tribeca called Sushiito. Hopefully by the end of the year, you know, that's going to be in the two, 200, 300 range. I don't know exactly what, but, you know, uh, there's a lot of high-end omakases popping up. So I see that trend going. I don't know how much further it can go, but I guess it's as, you know, it's whatever people want to pay for it. So before it was 250 during COVID world, it's now like almost 400 and who knows how much higher it can continue to go. Uh, obviously there's masa over already charged. They were charging $800 or something like that, $600. So, um, obviously people want to pay for that. So it's, if people are willing to pay for it, I can continue to see it, uh, traject that way. Mm. But, you know, obviously there's also the more entry level of 50, $65, um, more not traditional or more farmed items. Um, but people are willing to, people are willing to pay for the experience. Right. Yeah, but I hope like even in Japan, you know, there's a home delivery sushi for like somebody's birthday or something like really, really available and you don't have to break your bank account. So I hope that culture is going to be uh, more prevalent as well, but we'll see what happens. Okay, so uh, what are your plans and dreams? I mean, my plans now in the near future is just, you know, continue to grow the staff that we have. Um, find new, find good new staff as well, uh, create stability uh, for the organization. And then for the future, um, I don't know. I mean, the delivery side and the restaurants is very complicated. Like I said, it's every single restaurant has a different way of delivery, different person. So it's very um, high. 
uh, very labor oriented. It requires a lot of people manpower. <clears throat> um, I think the future is more on the processing side. Um, you know, creating portions, doing a lot of the legwork for the restaurants who don't have staff or skilled staff. Um, so a lot of restaurants are going to demand more processed fish rather than taking a whole fish and doing their all, all their work. They want more prepared fish, for example, um, or creating our own products with whatever, you know, creating our own products and selling it to our restaurants since we already have that chain. So kind of like vertically integrating um, is kind of what I you know, what I'm more interested in doing in direct partnerships. Mm, right. Okay. So, well, that's exciting. I, I'm sure that a lot of people are switching from meat diet to fish diet to who knows, but I really think you're going to stay busy. So good luck. Thank you. And uh, where can we find your updates online and social media? Uh, yeah, we do, you know, we, we do, uh, Instagram. I mean, we don't have a professional company doing it. It was myself, and now I have somebody else helping me. Uh, and we do, uh, I think, twice a week. We send out email email blasts to all of our uh, retail consumers. But other than that, it's yeah, we don't really do much marketing or updates. So it's kind of, um, I guess, more than before now with Instagram. But that's really the only channel, and we all we'll update the. Um, um, website periodically whenever we have something new to share okay so the instagram is yamas seafood and also web, web, website is yamas seafood.com right yes okay. yes all right and then well listeners you can order your own seafood if you're in the u.s is it the whole u.s um yeah we deliver to uh we mainly deliver to new jersey new york uh, brooklyn um, parts of connecticut and philadelphia Oh, Pennsylvania, <clears throat> um, but we do ship via UPS next day air to uh, anyone in the country, in the U.S. Mm. Okay. All right. So thank you so much for joining us today, Nabu. And uh, again, good luck. Thank you so much. Right. Listeners, if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for show topics or guests, please contact us at japanese at heritageradionetwork.org or akikokatema.com. Japanese is a weekly program and always available at heritageradionetwork.org as well as on iTunes, Stitcher and Spotify as a podcast. Our engineer is Armin Spenjan and thank you for listening. I will see you next week. Japanese is powered by Simplecast. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thank you for listening.